get started? Okay. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, I'm Bipu Gouda. I'm a practicing internist here at Columbia, and I'm also the course director for Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials. And it's our pleasure to have you here on this beautiful fall day. Um, so before we get started, I wanted you all to uh, mark your calendars uh, for the upcoming Narrative Medicine Rounds in the next few months. Um, remember, the rounds always occur on the first Wednesday of each month. Um, and next month, we have Rachel Adams, a disability scholar at Columbia, who will be with us. And in December 4th, uh, Dr. Arthur Kleinman, who is a medical anthropologist and psychiatrist and um, was a big influence, actually, on, on, on my trajectory um, as, a, as a student. Um, and he's a professor at Harvard University and uh, will be coming here to speak. Um, and then after the new year, uh, Amy Arbus, who's a photographer, will be here as well. Uh, so to, to introduce our speaker, um, we'll have Nellie Herman come up in a minute. Uh, Nellie Herman is, a, is the creative director for the program in narrative medicine. And she's been a very central part um, of this program as it has grown. And Nellie is also a novelist. Um, and her first book here, uh, The Cure for Grief, is, and she's very embarrassed that I'm showing this book, but it's a beautiful book. Um, but her, her first book, her debut book, uh, is a really beautiful and sensitive story about how illness uh, can really tear at the core of the family as well as individual experience. Um, and the story is also about the restorative powers that the body and the spirit has. It's a beautiful story. The Washington Post wrote, Nellie Herman's first novel is proof that in the hands of a skillful writer, the most familiar themes can surprise us with their potency and truth. And Nellie's work here at the Program in Narrative Medicine and at Columbia, uh, I think she's been doing something very similar. She has been teaching uh, fiction writing to students and clinicians. Um, and in doing so, she's helping us recognize our own voice as clinicians and as students and caring for the sick, and also recognizing the voice of our patients and recognizing that those voices have their own potency and truth. Um, and at this point, Nellie has directly taught hundreds of students and clinicians at Columbia um, and across the United States and across the globe. So it's my pleasure to introduce Nellie and have her uh, welcome our speaker tonight. Thank you, I was not expecting to be uh, introduce before I introduce. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I am nervous because I am a huge fan of our uh, almost speaker, not quite yet speaker. It's my true privilege and pleasure to introduce to you the great writer Alexander Heyman, whose name I'm worried about um, mispronouncing. Thank you, great. We'll see if I can keep it up. Um, I have been a fan of Heyman, since I read his first book of short stories, The Question of Bruno, published in the year 2000. I was amazed by the freshness of the forms of these stories, each of them written amazingly for me at the time in the process of finishing an MFA program, with a seeming indifference for the traditional short story form. I was also struck by the innovation in his use of the English language, juxtapositions of words I had never seen, images that were presented with a clarity brought about by unexpected turns of phrase and metaphor. 
I learned later that this was in part because Heyman was writing in English, an adopted language, instead of his native Bosnian, but it was also because this is a writer that cares about language and form and cares to stretch the boundaries of how we think about these things. I have been a fan ever since. Um, Alexander Heyman is the author of the novel The Lazarus Project, which was a finalist for the 2008 National Book Award and National Book Critics Circle Award, and three collections of short stories, The Question of Bruno, Nowhere Man, which was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and is also um, a novel, I sort of, sort of straddles genres, um, and Love and Obstacles. His first book of nonfiction, The Book of My Lives, was published this year. Born in Sarajevo, Heyman visited Chicago in 1992, intending to stay for a matter of months. While he was there, Sarajevo came under siege, and he was unable to return home. Heyman wrote his first story in English in 1995. He has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation, the Jan Mikulski Prize for Literature, the Penn W.J. Zabold Award, and most recently, a 2012 USA Fellowship. In the Narrative Medicine program, we talk a lot about stories, what they're for and how they work and why they're important. We try to transcend, at least I hope we do, the boundaries that are placed on storytelling by a society that often doesn't seem to understand or value its many natural uses. If you read any of our guests' work, you will know that he has a lot to teach all of us. This is a writer who understands storytelling in all of its power and possibilities and who takes seriously the task of telling a story well and telling it, in his own words, all the way. In Bosnia, Heyman tells us, there are no words that are equivalent to fiction and nonfiction. From the storytelling point of view, the difference is artificial. When I read this in an interview that he gave in Guernica magazine, I felt a particular sense of excitement and satisfaction, as many of you will understand from what I'm always talking about in class with you. Um, our guest can say everything be way better than I can, so I'm going to get out of the way and let him speak. Before I do, I'd just like to share one more quote from that same interview, which is actually really two quotes that I've smushed together and pretended that they're one. I hope that's all right with our writer. Um, that I found particularly resonant for our purposes and um, also just really wanted to have the pleasure of reading out loud. I think that literature is, a, this is him speaking, not me. I think that literature is a venue for inviting. One starts from the personal space and then transforms it into something that transfers beyond the personal. This transference from private to public, from personal to public, I don't want to say universal, this is what's exciting about literature. I start from my small, personal, anonymous, autonomous space, and then from there I can write using imagination and language and create some sort of zone that other people can enter. We can share it because it's not entirely mine. It is subject to interpretation, perhaps empathy. There are many negotiable aspects, as it is not complete before someone else enters that zone. It is inviting. It is also challenging. I learned a hard lesson in Bosnia about art and its ennobling aspect, or the absence thereof. But despite all that I know rationally and everything that I can put into words, I can say that I have difficulty giving up the notion of the nobility of art. I still believe that the only reason to write is that somehow it will make something or somebody better. I do believe, and I know I shouldn't, that art transcends money and success and any of that. You can still do it if you're not clinging to the notion of nobility, but I am. I'm clinging to it by my nails. I really can't justify it intellectually. I'd argue against it rationally. Yet if it wasn't for that, what would this life be? 
What would this world be? What the fuck would we do? I'm fully aware that it's something that cannot be accomplished by me or anyone, but it's something to strive for and fail at daily. Alexander Hamilton. Uh, thank you for this welcoming um, introduction. Thank you all for coming. <clears throat> I think that the best way to go is that I read a little from the piece called The Aquarium, which some of you understand, have read and used in class, and then we can talk. I'd be happy to answer questions and go you know, in any direction that suits you. So, on July 15, 2010, my wife, Terry, and I took our younger daughter, Isabel, for her regular medical checkup. She was nine months old and appeared to be in perfect health. Her first teeth had come in, and she was now regularly eating with us at the dinner table, babbling and shoveling rice cereal into her mouth by herself. A cheerful, joyous child, she had a fondness of people we shared not, the joke went, inherited from her congenitally grumpy father. Terry and I always went together to all the doctor's appointments for our children, and this time we also took along Ella, Isabel's big sister, who was almost three years old. The nurse at Dr. Gonzalez's office took Isabel's temperature, measured her weight and her height and her head circumference. And Ella was happy with us that she didn't have to undergo the same ordeal. Dr. G, as we called him, listened to Isabel's breathing, checked her eyes and ears. On his computer, he pulled up Isabel's development chart. Her height was within the expected range. She was a bit underweight. Everything seemed fine except for her head circumference, which exceeded two standard measures of deviation. Dr. G was concerned. Reluctant to send Isabel for an MRI, he scheduled an ultrasound exam for the following day. Back at home, Isabel was restless and cranky. She had a hard time falling and staying asleep. If we hadn't gone to Dr. G's, we would have thought that she was simply tired. But now, we had a different interpretative framework founded on fear. Later that night, I took Isabel out of her bedroom, out of our bedroom. She always slept with us to calm her down. In the kitchen, I sang to her my entire lullaby repertoire, You Are My Sunshine, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and a Mozart song I learned as a child and whose lyrics in Bosnian I miraculously remembered. Singing the three lullabies in a relentless loop usually worked, but this time it took a while before she laid her head on my chest and quieted down. It felt as though she were comforting me, telling me somehow that everything would be all right. Word as I was, I imagined a future in which I would one day recall that moment and tell someone, Isabel herself perhaps, how it was she who calmed me down. My daughter, I would say, took care of me, and she was but nine months old. The following morning, Isabel underwent an ultrasound exam of her head, crying in Terry's arms throughout. Shortly after we came back home, Dr. G called and told us the ultrasound showed that Isabel was hydrocephalic and that we needed to go to an emergency room immediately. It was a life-threatening situation. The ER examination room at Chicago Children's Memorial Hospital was kept dark as Isabel was about to have a CT scan and the doctors were hoping she would fall asleep by herself so they wouldn't have to drug her. 
but she was not allowed to eat because there was a possibility of a subsequent MRI and she kept crying with hunger. A resident gave her a colorful whirly gig and we blew, it at, and we blew at it to distract her. In the horrifying dimness of possibilities, we waited for something to come to pass, all too afraid to imagine what it might be. Dr. Tamita, the head of pediatric neurosurgery, read the CT scans for us. Isabel's ventricles were enlarged, full of fluid. Something was blocking the draining channels, Dr. Tamita said possibly a growth. An MRI was urgently needed. Terry held Isabel in her arms as the anesthetics were administered. Her head nearly instantly fell heavy on Terry's chest. We handed her over to the nurses for an hour-long MRI. This would be the first time we delivered her to complete strangers and walked away to hear the news. The cafeteria in the hospital basement was the saddest place in the world, and forever it shall be. With its grim neon lights and gray tabletops and the diffuse foreboding of those who stepped away from suffering children to have a grilled cheese sandwich. We didn't dare speculate about the results of the MRI. We suspended our imagination, anchored in the moment which, terrifying as it was, hadn't yet extended into a future. Called up to medical imaging, we ran into Dr. Tamida in the overhead hallway. We believe, he said, that Isabel has a tumor. He showed us the, M uh, the MR images on the computer. Right at the center of Isabel's brain, lodged among her cerebellum, brainstem, and hypothalamus, there was a round thing. It was the size of a golf ball, Dr. Tamida suggested. But I'd never cared about golf and couldn't envision what he was saying. He would remove the tumor and we would find out what kind it was only after the pathology report. But it looks like a territory, he said. I couldn't comprehend the word territory either. It was outside my language and experience, belonging to the domain of the unimaginable and incomprehensible, the domain into which Dr. Tamida was now guiding us. <clears throat> Isabel was asleep in the recovery room, motionless, innocent. Terry and I kissed her hands and forehead. In 24 hours or so, our existence was horribly and irreversibly transformed. At Isabel's bedside, we wept within the moment that was dividing our life into before and after, whereby the before was forever foreclosed, while the after was spreading out like an exploding twinkle star into a dark universe of pain. Still unsure of the word Dr. Tomita had uttered, I looked up brain tumors on the internet and found an image of a tumor nearly identical to the one in Isabel's brain. I recognized the bastard when I saw it comprehending the word territory at that moment. The full name was, I read, a typical territory rhabdoid tumor, ATRT. It was highly malignant and exceedingly rare, a freak occurring in only three out of one million children, representing about 3% of pediatric cancers of the central, central nervous system. The survival rate for children under three was less than 10%. There were more discouraging statistics available for me to ponder, but I recalled from the screen, deciding instead to talk to and trust Isabel's doctors alone. Never again would I research the situation on the internet. I had a hard time telling Terry about what I had read because I wanted to protect her from all the horrid possibilities. I understood already 
that managing knowledge and imagination was necessary for not losing our minds. On Saturday, July 17th, Dr. Tamira and his neurosurgical team implanted an Amaya reservoir in Isabel's head so as to help drain and relieve the pressure from her accumulated cerebrospinal fluid. When she returned to her hospital bed on the neurosurgery floor, Isabel kicked off her blanket as she had been warned to do. We took it as an encouraging sign, a hopeful first step on a long journey. On Monday, she was released from the hospital to wait at home for the surgery that would remove the tumor, excuse me, scheduled for the end of the week. We went home to wait. <clears throat> Terry's parents were in town because Terry's sister had given birth to her second son on the day of Isabel's checkup. Too busy with Isabel's illness, we hardly paid attention to the new arrival of the family. And Ella spent the weekend with her grandparents, barely noticing the upheaval and our related absence. That sunny Tuesday afternoon, we all went out for a walk, Isabel strapped to Terry's chest. The same night, we rushed to the emergency room because Isabel developed a fever which suggested an infection not uncommon after the insertion of a foreign object, in this case the Omaya, in a child's head. She received antibiotics for infection and underwent a scan or two. The Omaya was removed. On Wednesday afternoon, I went back home from the hospital to be with Ella as we promised we would take her to our neighborhood farmer's market. Keeping promises was essential in the ongoing catastrophe. We bought blueberries and peaches on the way home. We picked up some first-rate cannoli from our favorite pastry shop. I talked to Ella about Isabel's being sick about her tumor and told her she would have to stay with Grandma that night. She didn't complain or cry, able as well as any three-year-old to understand the difficulty of our predicament. As I was walking to the car, the cannoli in hand, to get back to the hospital, Terry called and urged me to get there as soon as possible. Isabel's tumor was hemorrhaging. Emergency surgery was required. Dr. Tamita was waiting to talk to me before going with Isabel into the operating room. It took me about 15 minutes to get to the hospital, through traffic that existed in an entirely different space-time, where people did not rush crossing the streets, and no infant life was in danger, where everything turned away quite leisurely from the disaster. In the hospital room, the box of cannoli still in my hand, I saw Terry weeping over Isabel, who was deathly pale. Dr. Tamita was there, the images on the screen already pulled up and showing the hemorrhage in our daughter's head. It seemed that once the CSF drained, the tumor had expanded into the vacated space and its blood vessels started bursting. Immediate removal of the tumor was the only hope, but there was a distinct risk of Isabel's bleeding to death. A child of her age had no more than a pint of blood in her body, Dr. Tamita told us and continuous transfusion might not suffice. Before we followed Isabel into pre-op, I put the cannoli into the fridge in her room. The selfish lucidity of that act produced an immediate sense of guilt. Only later would I understand that that absurd act is related to some form of des desperate hope. The cannoli might be necessary for our future survival. The surgery was to last four to six hours. Dr. Tamita's assistant will keep us updated. We kissed Isabel's parchment pale forehead and watched her be wheeled into the unknown by a gang of ma masked strangers. Tay and I returned to the room to wait and see if our child would live through the night. 
We alternately wept and kept silence, always embraced. The assistant called us after a couple of hours and said that Isabel was doing fine. We shared some cannoli, not to celebrate, but to keep ourselves going. We had very little food and sleep. The lights in the room were dimmed. We were in a bed behind a curtain. For some reason, no one bothered us. We were far away from the world, where there were farmers' markets and blueberries, where nurses changed shifts and gossip, where other children were born and lived, where grandmothers put granddaughters to sleep. I had never felt as close to another human being as I did that night to my wife. Transcendent love would be a plain way to describe what I felt. Sometime after midnight, the assistant called to say that Isabel had made it through the surgery. We met Dr. Tomita outside the waiting room in which some other unfortunate parents slept on uncomfortable sofas, coiled into their own nightmares. Dr. Tomita thought it removed most of the tumor. As luck would have it, the tumor did not burst, so blood did not flood the brain, which would have been lethal. Isabel did well and should be transferred to the intensive care unit shortly, he said, where we could see her. I remember that moment as a relatively happy one. Isabel lived. Only the imminent outcome was relevant. All we could hope for was reaching the next step, whatever it was. The future was capped. There could be no life beyond Isabel's being alive now. At the ICU, we found her entangled in a web of IV tubes and monitor wires, paralyzed by a rockeronium called the rock by everyone there which had been given to prevent her from ripping out her breathing tubes. We spent the night watching her kissing the fingers on her limp hand, reading or singing to her. The next day, I set up an iPod dock and played music, not only in a willful delu willfully delusional belief that music is good for a painful recovering brain, but also to counter the soul-crushing hospital noise, the beeping of monitors, the wheezing of the breathing machinery, indifferent chatter of nurses in the hallways, the siren that would go off whenever a patient situation abruptly worsened. To the accompaniment, accompaniment of Bach cello concertos on Mingus piano pieces, my heart registered every dip of Isabel's heart rate, every change in her blood pressure. I couldn't take my eyes off the cruelly fluctuating numbers on the monitors as though sheer staring could influence the outcome. All we could ever do was wait. There's a psychological mechanism, I've come to believe, that prevents, us, that prevents most of us from imagining the moment of our own death. For if it were possible to imagine fully that instant of passing from consciousness to non-existence, with all the attendant fear and humiliation of absolute helplessness, it would be very hard to live, as it would be unbearably obvious that death is inscribed in everything that constitutes life, that any moment of our existence is a breath away from being the last one. We will be continuously devastated by the magnitude of that inescapable moment, so our minds wisely refuse to consider it. Still, as we mature into mortality, we gingerly dip our poor, tingling toes into the void, hoping that the mind will somehow ease itself into dying, that God or some other soothing opiate will remain available as we venture deeper into the darkness of non-being. But how can you possibly ease yourself into the death of your child? For one thing, it is supposed to happen well after your own dissolution into nothingness. 
Your children are supposed to outlive you by several decades, in the course of which they'll live their lives happily devoid of the burden of your presence, eventually completing the same mortal trajectory as their parents. Oblivion, denial, fear, the end. They're supposed to handle their own mortality and no help in that regard, other than forcing them to confront death by way of your dying, can come from you. Death ain't a science project. And even if you could imagine your child's death, why would you? But I've been cursed with a compulsively catastrophic imagination and had often involuntarily imagined the worst. I used to envision being run over by a car whenever I crossed the street, complete with a vision of the layers of dirt on the car's axle as, it as its wheels crushed my skull. Or, stuck on a subway with all the lights out, I'd envision a deluge of fire advancing through the tunnel toward the train. Only after I met Terry did I manage to get my tormentful imagination under control. And after our children were born, I learned to quickly delete the visions of something horrible happening to them. A few weeks before Isabel's cancer was diagnosed, I had noticed that her head was large and somewhat asymmetrical, and a question popped into my head. What if she has a brain tumor? But before my mind ran off with all the frightening possibilities, I talked myself out of considering them. She appeared to be in perfect health. Even if you could imagine your child's grave illness, why would you? A couple of days after Isabel's first resection, an MRI showed that there was a piece of tumor left in her brain. The more of the cancer taken out, the better her survival prognosis would be, so Isabel had to undergo another surgery, after which returned to the ICU. Then after she was transferred from the ICU to neurosurgery, her CSF was still not draining. An external ventricular drain, EVD, was put in, while the passage in her brain was surgically opened for drainage. She had fever again. The EVD was taken out. Her ventricles became enlarged and full of fluid again, to the point of endangering her life. Her blood pressure was dropping. Undergoing yet another emergency scan, facing upward in the MRI tunnel, she nearly choked, her vomit bubbling out of her mouth. Finally, a shunt was surgically implanted, allowing the CSF to drain directly into her stomach. In less than three weeks, Isabel had undergone two resections, whereby her cerebral hemispheres had to be parted to allow, allow Dr. Tomita to access the region where the stem, the pineal gland, and the cerebellum meet, and scoop out the tumor with six additional surgeries to address the failure of her CSF to drain. A tube had been, had been inserted in her chest with administering, administering chemotherapy drugs directly into her bloodstream. To top it all, an inoperable peanut-sized tumor was detected in her frontal lobe. While the pathology report confirmed that the cancer was indeed ATRT, the chemo was, to start, was set to start on August 17 a month after the diagnosis, and her oncologists, Dr. Fangusar and Dr. Lula, did not wish to discuss her prognosis. We did not dare press them. During the first few weeks after Isabel's diagnosis, we did not eat or sleep much. Most of the time, Terry and I were at the hospital at Isabel's side. We tried to spend time with Ella, who was not allowed into the ICU, though she could visit Isabel in the neurosurgery ward where she made Isabel smile every time they were together. Ella seemed to be handling the catastrophe pretty well. 
supportive family and good friends came through our house, distracting her, helping us to cover up our um, continuous absence. When we talked to her about Isabel's illness, Ella listened, wide-eyed, concerned, and perplexed. It was sometime in the first few weeks of the ordeal that Ella began talking about her imaginary brother. Suddenly, in an onslaught of her words, we would discern stories about the brother who was sometimes a year old, sometimes in high school, and who would occasionally travel for some obscure reason to Seattle or California, only to return to Chicago to be featured in yet another adventurous monologue of Ella's. It is not unusual, of course, for children of Ella's age to have imaginary friends or siblings. The creation of an imaginary character is related, I believe, to the explosion of the child's newly acquired linguistic ability, which occurs between the ages of two and four and rapidly creates an access of language that she may not have enough experience to match. The child has to construct imaginary narratives to try out the words she suddenly possesses. Ella now knew the word California, but had no experience in any way related to it, nor could she conceptualize it in its abstract aspect, in its Californianness. Hence, her imaginary brother had to be deployed to the sunny state, which allowed Ella to talk at length as if she knew California. The acquired words demanded the story, the language necessitated a fictional landscape. At the same time, the surge in language at this age creates a distinction between exteriority and interiority. The child's interiority is now expressible and thus possible to externalize. The world doubles. Ella could now talk about what was here and what was, and about what was elsewhere. The language made here and elsewhere continuous and simultaneous. Once at our dinner table, I asked Ella what her brother was doing at that very moment. He was in her room, she said, matter-of-factly, throwing the tantrum. At first, her brother had no name, let alone a physical aspect. When asked what he was called, she responded, Gugu Gaga, which was the nonsensical sound Malcolm, our five-year-old nephew and her favorite cousin, used when he didn't know the word for something. Since Charlie Mingus is practically a deity in our household, we suggested to Ella the name Mingus, and so Mingus her brother became. Soon thereafter, Malcolm gave her an inflatable doll of a space alien, like this which Ella subsequently elected to embody the existentially slippery Mingus. Though Ella would often play with her blown-up brother, the alien's physical presence was not always required for her to issue pseudo-parental orders to Mingus or tell a story of his escapades. While our world was being reduced to the claustrophobic size of ceaseless dread, Ella's world was expanding. And a typical territory graboid tumor is so rare that there are few chemotherapy protocols specifically designed for it, as it's very difficult to assemble a group of affected children big enough for a clinical trial. Many of the available protocols are derived from treatments for medulloblastomas and other brain tumors, modified with increased toxicity to counter the ATRTs, vicious malignancy. Some of those protocols involve focused radiation treatment, but those would have significantly and detrimentally affected development in a child of Isabel's age. The protocol that Isabel's oncologist decided upon was of extremely high toxicity, consisting of six cycles of chemotherapy, the last one being the most intense. So much so, in fact, that Isabel's only mature blood cells extracted earlier would have to be re-injected after the last cycle 
in a process called stem cell recovery to help her depleted help, help her depleted bone marrow recover. Throughout the chemo, she would also have to receive transfusions of platelets and red blood cells while her white blood cell count would need to recover by itself each time. Her immune system would be temporarily annihilated, and as soon as it recovered, another chemo cycle would begin. Because of her extensive brain surgeries, she could no longer sit or stand, and hence would have to undergo occupational and physical therapy between the bouts of chemo. Sometime in the uncertain future, it was suggested, she might be able to return to the developmental stage expected of her age. When her first chemo cycle began, Isabel was 10 months old and weighed only 16 pounds. On her good days, she smiled heroically more than any other child I've ever known, more than I ever will. Few though they may have been, the good days enabled us to project some kind of future for Isabel and her family. We scheduled her occupational and physical therapy appointments. We let our friends and family know what days would be good for visits. We put things down on the calendar for the upcoming couple of weeks. But the future was as precarious as Isabel's health, extending only to the next reasonably achievable stage, the end of the chemo cycle, the recovery of her white blood cell count, the few days before the next cycle when Isabel would be as close to being well as possible. I prevented my imagination from conjuring anything beyond that, refusing to consider either possible outcome of her, either possible outcome of her illness. If I found myself envisioning holding her little hand as she was expiring, I would delete the vision, often starting Terry by saying aloud to myself, no, 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 no. I blocked imagining the other outcome too, her successful survival, because some time ago, I'd come to believe that whatever I wanted to happen would not happen, precisely because I wanted it to happen. I therefore developed a mental strategy of eliminating any desire for good outcomes as if my wishing would expose me to the hostile, spiteful forces that put up this ruthless universe. I dared not imagine Isabel's survival because I thought I would thus jinx it. Shortly after the start of Isabel's first chemo cycle, a well-intentioned friend of mine called and the first thing she asked was, so, have things settled into some kind of routine? Isabel's chemotherapy did, in fact, offer a seemingly predictable pattern. The chemo cycles had an inherent repetitive structure. The scheduled chemo drugs administered in the same order. The expected reactions, vomiting, loss of appetite, collapse of the immune system, the intravenous DPM. Given because she was unable to eat, the anti-nausea drugs, antifungal drugs, and antibiotics administered at regular intervals, the expected transfusions, a few visits to the emergency room due to fever, the gradual recovery measured by rising blood counts, and then a few bright days at home, then back in the hospital for a new cycle. If Isabel and Terry, who seldom left her side, were in the hospital for the chemo, I'd spend the night at home with Ella, drop her off at school, then bring coffee and breakfast to my wife, and while she was having a shower, sing to or play with my daughter. I'd clean up Isabel's vomit or change her diapers, keeping them for the nurse so they could be weighed. In pseudo-expert lingo, Terry and I would discuss the previous night, what was expected that day. We'd wait for the rounds, so we could ask our difficult questions. The human sense of comfort depends on repetitive familiar actions, 
our minds and bodies strive to be accustomed to predictable circumstances. But no lasting routine could be established for Isabel. An illness such as ATRT causes a breakdown of all biological, emotional, and family routines where nothing goes the way you expect, let alone wanted to. A day or two after the beginning of a TPN, while we were at home, Isabel unexpectedly went into anaphylactic shock, swelling rapidly and having trouble breathing, and so we rushed her to the emergency room. Besides the sudden catastrophic events, there was the daily hell, the coughing, sudden sneeze, which would often lead to vomiting. She'd have rashes and constipation. She'd be listless and weak. At the first sign of fear, we'd go to the ER. We could never tell her it would get better. No amount of repetition can get you used to death. The comfort of routine belongs to the world outside. One early morning, driving to the hospital, I saw a number of able-bodied, energetic runners progressing along Fullerton Avenue toward the sunny lakefront, and I had an intensely physical sensation of being inside of an aquarium. I could see outside. The people outside could see me inside if they somehow chose to pay attention, but we lived and breathed in entirely different environments. Isabel's illness and our experience had little connection to and even less impact on the world outside. Tay and I were gathering undesirable, disheartening knowledge that had no application whatsoever in the outside world and was of no interest to anyone in it. The runners ran duly along into their better <coughs> People reveled in the, sta in the stable banality of routine living. The torturous horse kept scratching its innocent behind on a tree. Isabel's ATRT made everything inside our life intensely, heavily real. Everything outside was not so much unreal as devoid of comprehensible substance. When people who didn't know about Isabel's illness asked me what was new, and I'd tell them, I'd witness their rapidly receding to the distant horizon of their own lives where entirely different things mattered. After I told my tax accountant that Isabel was gravely ill, he said, but you look good, and that's the most important thing. The world sailing calmly on depended on the language of functional platitudes and cliches that had no logical or conceptual connection to our catastrophe. I had a hard time talking to well-wishing people and an even harder time listening to them. They were kind and supportive, and Terry and I endured their babbling without begrudging it, as they simply didn't know what else to say. They protected themselves from what we were going through by limiting themselves to the manageable domain of vacuous, overworn language. But we were far more comfortable with the people wise enough not to venture into verbal support than our closest friends knew that. We might prefer talking to Dr. Lula or Dr. Fengasaro, who could help us understand things that mattered to being told to hang in there, to which I would respond, there is no other place to hang. And we stayed away from anyone who we feared might offer us the solace of that supreme platitude, God. The hospital chaplain was prohibited from coming anywhere near us. One of the most common platitudes we heard was that words failed. But words were not failing to me at all. It was not true that there was no way to describe our experience. Tay and I had plenty of language to talk to each other about the horror of what was happening and talk we did. The words of Dr. Fengasar and Dr. Lula, always painfully pertinent, were not failing either. If there was a communication problem, it was that there were too many words, 
They were far too heavy and too specific to be inflicted upon others. Take Isabel's chemo drugs, incristine, methotrexate, etoposide, cyclophosphamine, cisplatin, all creatures of a particularly malign, malign demonology. <coughs> if something was failing, it was the functionality of routine platitudinous language. The comforting cliches were now inapplicable and perfectly useless. We instinctively protected other people from the knowledge we possessed. We let them think that words failed because we knew they didn't want to be familiar with the vocabulary we used daily. We were sure they didn't want to know what we did. We didn't want to know it either. There was no one else on the inside with us, and we certainly didn't wish anybody's children to have ATRT so we could talk to them about it. And the resource guide for parents of children with brain and spinal cord tumors, which we were given to help us cope with our children's brain tumor, ATRT was not discussed in detail because it was too rare. In point of fact, it was entirely lighted. We could not communicate even within the small group of families with children beset by cancer. The walls of the aquarium we were hanging in were made of other people's words. Meanwhile, Mingus allowed Della to practice and expand her language. While providing her with company and comfort, Terry and I were barely able to provide. On the mornings when I drove her to school, Ella would offer run-on tales of Mingus, the recondite pl plots of which were sunk deep in her verbal torrent. Now and then, we'd witness her playing with Mingus, the alien or the fully imaginary one, administering fictional medicine or taking his temperature, using the vocabulary she had collected on, our, on her visits to the hospital or from our talking about Isabel's illness. She'd tell us that Mingus had a tumor, was undergoing tests, but was going to get better in two weeks. Once Mingus even had a little sister named Isabel, entirely distinct from Ella's little sister, who also had a tumor and was also going to get better in two weeks. Two weeks, I recognize, was just about the length of the future Terry and I could conceive of at the time. Whatever accidental knowledge of Isabel's illness Ella was accumulating, whatever words she was picking up from participating in our experience, she was processing through her imaginary brother. She clearly missed her sister, so Mingus gave her some comfort in that respect as well. She longed for our being together as a family, which was perhaps why one day Mingus acquired his own set of parents and moved out with them to a place around the corner, only to return to us the next day. She externalized her complicated feelings by assigning them to Mingus, who then acted upon them. One day at breakfast, while Ella ate her ate her oatmeal and rambled on about her brother, I recognized in a humbling flash that she was doing exactly what I've been doing as a writer all these years. In my books, fictional characters allowed me to understand what was hard for me to understand, which so far has been nearly everything. Much like Ella, I found myself with an excess of words, the wealth of which far exceeded the pathetic limits of my biography. I needed narrative space to extend myself into. I needed more lives. I, too, had needed another set of parents and someone other than myself to throw my metaphysical tantrums. I would cooked up those avatars in the soup of my ever-changing ever self, but they were not me. They did what I wouldn't or couldn't. Listening to Ella furiously and endlessly unfurl the yarns of the Ninja's tales, I understood 
with the need to tell stories is deeply embedded in our minds and inseparably entangled with the mechanisms that generate and absorb language. Narrative imagination, and therefore fiction, is a basic evolutionary tool of survival. We process the world by telling stories and produce human knowledge through our engagement with imagined selves. Whatever knowledge I'd acquired in my middling fiction writing career was of no value inside our ATRD aquarium. I could not write a story that would help me comprehend what was happening. Isabel's illness overrode any kind of imaginative involvement on my part. All I cared about was the hard reality of Isabel's breaths on my chest, the concreteness of her slipping into slumber as I sang my three lullabies. I did not wish or dare to imagine anything beyond her smiles and laughter, beyond her present torturous but still beautiful life. I'll stop here. <coughs> Well, <clears throat> did you hear the question? <laughs> um, well, first of all, thank you um, for saying what preceded the question. The question is essentially what is 
ready for. I expressed doubts um, publicly and privately, and you know what we do, we be in this case ready. Well, in in some ways, I don't know what it's for, but the thing is, that goes both ways. You don't know if it's good for something or not. It's too early to tell. So this civilization is only five thousand years old. Um, I'll start with this piece. When I was considering writing this before I started writing it, I discussed this with my wife, who's uh, not a writer and does not have um, an instinct to process things through language. She processes them differently. This is also more, uh, this is perhaps related, she's more protective of her privacy and our privacy. And this, of course, is um, uh, dealing with things that are very close to our hearts. So I had to justify to myself writing this. This is not just a story that I could write and, you know, you write it, it doesn't work, who cares? There's a different thing at stake in this case. But in the end, and I'm not sure it's going to help, the, the only way I could put it with some responsibility is that I could not not write it. Um, but the choice was, if I don't write it, that means I'm avoiding dealing with difficult things. Um, very difficult things. That, as a writer, that for a writer like me, for someone who believes in a particular kind of writing, means that I'm a hack. That I only, um, that I made a choice of writing about easy things, and, and at least one thing would be a consequence of that. That's more money, and that's not the case. Um, but it's also in relation to. I think with grief is, and of course I perfectly understand this, and in many ways it's part of the grieving process, is that you tuck in the person you lost into this corner where they are visible but distant, if you understand what I mean. So that you never go into that corner, but it's there. Mm -hmm. um, and you put it somewhere in the bookshelf, a picture, and then you look at it occasionally, right? So it's never forgotten, but it's over there. And so it's a, it's a method of coping, and to that extent it's, it's I suppose, human and acceptable. But that my instinct is not to do that. It is to go in the direction, uh, to take things to the logical extreme, emotions, to go and see what's there. And I was not sure what the benefit of that would be, and I still cannot define it. I do know that, and I cannot clinically explain this, my diagnosis, it did help Ella to be able to talk about it. It did help her that we talked about it. And so she, her, her sister, her life and death and loss is incorporated in her life in any number of ways. She talks about it. She can conceptualize that through six now, not in this metaphysical way, but she knows the physical death. She knows that things and pets die. Um, it, it's become part of her life. Um, her life, you know, is at the very beginning, so I don't know what long-term benefit of, from that would be. But I also think that we don't have to know what writing is good for. So I mean, it's in some ways, what is sufficient for the whole project of writing or literature is the notion that it might be good for something, a sort of utopian target of human betterment in general. And we continuously, daily, repeatedly fail at that. Every single one of us writers, but also in a culture. Nothing, all, none of the great works of art have really stopped anyone from dying. And you know, you're, you're doctors, you, you know the value of that. And so, but at the same time, we've been doing this for, you know, thousands of years. So it has to be for something. But what is it? I don't know. But the fact that we can conceptualize 
sensitivity to our uh, deepest thoughts and engagement with the world. That in fact, it, it's, um, it can only be good for something if it's a common human project. In other words, what I write is not good for anything. If I didn't write it or if it just vanished, if I never wrote another thing, no one would notice. But it's the collective project of all of us to be engaged in that that makes a difference. And what writing does is, um, mine and everyone else's, is to create this network of people and human experiences that we can enter from any point, from any position. And so the belief in the utility of it is necessary for the network. But at the same time, there's no definable, real, tangible utility. And so this essay did not make me miss my child less. I don't know. I cannot find any therapeutical value for me and my family. Um, but at the same time, I, um, I'm engaged with it in a way that, that makes me more present in my life, in our life, in my children's life. And what that is good for, it's hard to tell. Could you speak up? Sorry, I'm sorry. I wanted to say I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Uh, and as somebody who has also cared for a family member who's been really ill, I thought your use of the metaphor of the aquarium was one of the best things I've read that describes that experience. Uh, so I wanted to thank you for that. And then kind of following up on this question, um, I don't know how often you read and share this piece, but if you feel like uh, the, the writing and the sharing of this piece has helped either you to bridge that glass wall of the aquarium uh, to the other side or help bring other people over to the other side of the wall? Well, um, I suppose in some ways that if the aquarium is not... It's so, it's, 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 it exists around the Isabel's absence and that cannot, cannot be explained or shared. It's not just an absence of someone you love. So we, of course we can understand what it would be like to lose someone in love, but there's a particularity of her life and things that we miss daily. So that's on the, on this side, not on that side. Um, but I, I, I suppose I feel less now, um, I feel less that I'm inside an aquarium, or that the aquarium is a little bigger, that's another way to put it, perhaps. Um, I cannot say with certainty that it helped or did not help. I do not read this often, but it's partly, and this is hinted at in the text, it's um, a number of times after this book came out, before an interview or uh, before a public event, people who were introducing me or interviewing me gingerly asked me if it's okay if they mentioned this or brought up the affair. And, and I, you know, there, there was a kind instinct, but the assumption was that somehow it would be difficult for me to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Whereas my position is, it will be difficult for you if I talk. Yeah. Because you cannot handle that. Yeah. You cannot handle it at this time. And there's no reason why I should handle it. God forbid, you know, because it's a loss of a child. You do not want to handle that. Yeah. So, and so I would say, oh, well, don't, you know, I can talk about it. And they would gingerly still ask questions. They would not get deep into that because the assumption was that, that bringing it up would hurt me and, and, and would be very uncomfortable for me. And then so we should keep this polite distance but where we come from, and this is the aquarium, it is that I protect you. I mean, I don't, obviously don't mean you, but um, the other person. You do not want to know this. I can talk about it all night long, all day long, all the time. I don't want to because 
what is the utility in this situation? Because I do think that some, it might help because you deal with it. I mean, assuming that most of the people are medical students or, or doctors. It would sometime down the road perhaps help, or at least we can talk about it without not gingerly in that sense. And that is the aquarium. I'm, um, I'm not even then did I blame people for you know, being like that. It's, it's, it's a self-protective social mechanism. It's inscribed in language. This is what we do. We all do it. I've done it. We will all do it. But for whatever reason, I, um, I, I, you know, I can talk about it. And I can recognize, I can talk about it to other people. I mean, if people are in a situation similar to that, I, I can talk to them about it. It's difficult, but I can talk to them. Question about the voice of the piece. Um, very, very struck by um, how clear and cool it was for, for, for most of it. And almost in, in this context, I want to say, had a clinical feeling, very descriptive, very precise, and had a certain remove so that we could really see what was happening uh, and, and feel what was happening. And there was a, a flourish early on this beautiful line that this cafeteria was the saddest place and forever it shall be. It was very striking because it, it was, uh, it stood out for the, the dominant voice. I, I was just curious if that was, um, did you always know that as you were writing it that that's what you wanted to achieve? Uh, uh, and did you say anything about how the voice uh, emerged? Um, well, I, because I'm fortunate, it's one of those cliches the cliche, the story wrote itself, applies in this case. Unfortunately, there was a narrative trajectory in line. I did not have to make up stuff. And so, in some ways, it was uh, not quite reporting, but rather being aware of things as they were happening. And um, as part, part of the aquarium is this extraordinary sensitivity to everything around you, everything that is within the small confines of the aquarium, being at the hospital. Um, the alertness to everything, because... Well, you know, adrenaline is shooting up, obviously, but also that one um, thinks or not even thinks, feels that, that paying attention might be helpful. I once spent a long time looking at the, the, um, the heart rate numbers on the monitor. I would sit there and watch the, the monitor if I was in the same room. And her heart rate kept going up. And I kept badgering, it was in the ICU, the doctor. You know, why is it hard to go up? I said, oh, well, you know, it happens sometimes to go down. And they gave her something um, to slow it and went up. And so, and I kept asking this doctor, the heart is going up because I was, I spent hours watching the numbers on the monitor. It was obviously obsessive, I mean, with, with good reason. And I pressed the doctor so much, he was a fine, good doctor, that he looked up the medicine and it turned out in the 5%, it actually did not lower the heart rate, but increased the heart rate. And so then they changed the drug and heart rate went up. And so you, you, I entered into this um, state of mind where it's everything mattered and I, we were paying attention to every, everything. And so this is, um, makes you remember things. So the clarity is, it, it, um, when I write, I start writing at the point in everything I write, the point where uh, many of the thoughts and ideas have matured enough so I don't have to you know, stumble through that. But this, of course, because the narrative wrote itself out and because of this intense lucidity that I did not ask for, that it was, I could remember so much and understand so much. Uh, 
Um, I'm curious, as having written this piece and having gone through this experience, did you notice any change in how you felt or thought about medicine and or medical professionals? Um, as compared to before? Yeah. Well, yes, I suppose, but <laughs> there were other experiences. Um, and I'll mention this because it's part of this story of my engagement, our engagement with the medical profession. First, my, um, um, we had another daughter two years ago, and she was diagnosed with Prader-Willi syndrome, and this after 10 months in, a, in, a, in the ICU, or NICU, um, in Chicago. Um, and this, because unfortunately I had experience before of being in the hospital and protecting a child, we, my wife and I, um, there were certain things we would not negotiate about with doctors. We simply did not want to leave her alone. And so we were so adamant about it that the doctors, although no one could sleep with the uh, um, babies in the, in the NICU, we found a way to be with her all the time. We never left her side. Um, and so one of the things we learned, for one thing, is that, um, not that there's a space for negotiation with, with doctors, rather than that there are things we know as parents that doctors do not know, and that we will not be swayed in that regard. Uh, and then a year later, uh, my wife, um, had a cyst removed from her brain and then and had um, became unresponsive and was, um, the, uh, I don't know if this is universal, but stroke code was invoked at the hospital in Chicago, Northwestern Hospital, which means for a couple of hours they thought she had a stroke. And I was with her and I followed her through and would not leave her side at any point. Um, I wouldn't, they, they told me you cannot get into this elevator, I was just walking to the elevator. At some point, they called the security and wouldn't let me into the CT room, but I did never left her side. Because what we learned, it's not that you should not trust doctors, but rather there are things that we know yeah. as patients, and things that are important to us. And not just medically, or, but emotionally, intellectually, and, and philosophically, that simply are, um, cannot be overridden by doctors, however much respect I might have for them, and I do, I do not. The doctors that dealt with all these things have earned my respect in many ways. But what I learned is not, I respect doctors a lot after all these experiences, particularly doctors and the profession, but also in some ways respect what I know, what we know, and what is not negotiable in that, in that regard. And that required some, it was never, you know, never came to an incident, but there was some argument at some point, that I simply would say, no, I'm not going to do that, because um, I'm not going to leave her side. So uh, that's one thing that's changed. And also, and this is in the context of the larger you know, Obamacare and all that, what uh, in some ways is the most advanced medicine in the world, and in some other ways is just catastrophic um, in many ways, and to, that those two aspects are the same endeavor to exist simultaneously it's in many ways amazing.
the aquarium becomes a very complex place where perhaps on the inside of it are persons who know about these things that children not. And on the outside of it, like the bicycle riders or your mothers, are people who don't. Who might be able to look in if they wanted to. And so I'm thinking, um, where where are we in this? And I believe in the same way that audiences have to be protected from your reading your piece, for their sake, not yours. I think what happens is that the persons inside the aquarium, the persons who are ill, know that they have to protect us from it too. That we don't know what's inside them. And so that's what the writing in this case can be for in the same way that a perhaps more ideal or truthful healthcare might be for making really a clearing where those of us trained to care for the sick could indeed face what the sick come to know, which on the whole we don't. And that that becomes a task. I think um, uh, well, I'll the, tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> it is about uh, the similarities, perhaps, between uh, the project of writing and the project of healthcare, and how, for someone who was in our situation, being inside the aquarium, and then, um, which is a complex place, uh, is is similar. It allows um, you to understand. Um, the philosophical underpinnings of healthcare. This is a, a very unjust paraphrase of it. Oh, it was this close enough? I think writing and literature in particular, um, and this is um, nearly quoted commonly, but I said once, and I believe this, that you start from a personal space, a personal place, which is defined by language, because language is this magical thing which it belongs to everybody and only to me. And not only because I'm a writer. Because, and you know, there are words that can invoke in any of you very specific private personal memories. And yet that word is available to anyone at any given time. Um, and this language is a medium that tr can transfer uh, uh, knowledge, as it were, from the private or personal to the to collective or public, and the other way around. We absorb the public, we absorb you know, commonplaces and, and cliches, intellectually speaking, by linguist by way of linguistic cliches. And so this transfers from private to public and from public to private. Um, it applies to healthcare in many ways because, you know, this is my body and then something, it needs treatment and then you come to my body and then you do something about it, right? And then, but you do it coming with this knowledge that is not related to just my body. Is related to all these other bodies. And then you try to narrow that knowledge to the particularities and specificities of that body. From my end, you know, this is my body. I know there are other bodies, but this is mine. I know where it hurts, right? And it doesn't hurt everyone. And this, what is writing for is, and I think um, perhaps that applies to healthcare, it is for engagement. Yeah. It does not solve problems. Yeah. It's not a formula that if you do this, then you get that. We're so used to consumerist culture that for, to measure the utility or value of anything, there has to be an outcome that you can measure and grab in your hands. What is this book, book good for? Give me the numbers, and then we'll believe it's good for something. 
but what it's good for is engagement with the world and other people, and in a ways that have no specific um, parameters to be contextualized in, in terms of utility or benefit or profit. It is for being with other people. Yeah. That's what it is. It is for being part of humankind. That, of course, sounds vague in many ways, right? And, you know, it will be dismissed by people who are more goal-oriented. But I think um, it is precisely the advantage of literature that it doesn't have this particular goal. That the moment it has a goal, it's very close to becoming propaganda and all kinds of literature and art, you know, that had a goal were, in fact, propaganda. I grew up in, so in socialism, and there was plenty of goal-oriented art. Uh, so in that sense, I think that there's similarity, um, great similarity, not just in terms of, I think, philosophically. We engage with other people. And, and this, I think, it's an evolutional aspect of human being. That this is what, why we language is evolutionally determined. That we, we, you know, we don't have to, it comes to us, the way that walking comes to us, so that we can be part of this public and have um, the private space. Yes. Um, I've read recently a sad statistic that a high number of marriages do not survive the death of a child. And in your piece, you describe feeling a transcendent love for your wife. Um, and clearly, you're still together. So, but um, I'm not sure I understand what transcendent love means in your usage. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how it impacted the quality of your marriage and um, prospects for the future of the intimacy of this particular requirement. Well, I would, transcendent love, I think, would be how. We often, and this is the case even with children, we think of love as kind of a trait, right? I'll love you now, but many years from now, you'll be grateful to me for loving you, right, in various ways. Or you will be ungrateful, and I'll be pissed at you. <laughs> um, but we negotiate these things in the back of our heads, right? And in a marriage, it's all negotiation in many ways. When you're dating, when you're getting married, then through the marriage, you, you negotiate. All right, I love you, but what are you going to do for me? Um, and, you know, this is not inhuman. This is what we do. That moment with my wife, it was, it was past all kinds of negotiations. Unconditional. We were in it together, if you wish. And, uh, and it being this intense experience where there was nothing to talk about, nothing to say, nothing to negotiate for. The outcome is uncertain. There's no, you know, marriage or any kind of love, really, but marriage in particular. It's a project. We start this and we think, well, it'll work out for us. It's like mortgage, right? We'll pay it off one day and then it'll be yours. <laughs> um, but that, at that moment and for us around that time, that was not a consideration. Um, so in that sense, it was, it was transcendent. Transcendent, rather.
cares deeply about narrative and language. I don't see medicine being in your piece, our role and our function there. We weren't mobile. I don't know if we had the opportunity to be noble in the aquarium, in your case, I'm not sure. But I guess my question for you is, and now knowing that you've had so many engagements and opportunities to see medicine's mobility, could you tell me if you've witnessed and experienced physicians, particularly, I'm going to isolate to them, and others in healthcare system, but particularly, have you seen physicians achieving ability, not in the, you know, grand, but, but in the sense of what you describe in literature? Well, I mean, to me, the nobility of literature is, is perpetuating the situation of engagement, and in that sense, um, um, I suppose it's, I can imagine that many doctors, including the doctors that dealt with uh, my family, were noble. This, this, the, the find the strength to engage with it again, and then to, um, as it were, suffer defeat, lose a patient, and go back to it uh, without uh, losing um, the strength to keep coming at it. Um, I, you know, there were no great noble acts that many of the doctors I engaged. But there were smart people, and I would have to, we would have to trust them, or I, my wife was in the ICU, and there was a decision when to um, operate on her. She, my wife had a Chiari malformation, and then uh, when she became unresponsive, her, her brain dropped another five millimeters or so in her skull. And so that led to her being unresponsive, so they had to decompress. But the doctor, Chandler at Northwestern, a brilliant doctor who, um, he was trying to decide whether to do the surgery to operate right now or the following morning. And this is the kind of decision that, you know, it was, a, it was his call. It was not a matter of numbers or everything. He was stable and all this. So there was this moment where, you know, he, was, he asked me, what do you think? And we had this moment where we, he asked me what I think. So, I mean, I would have told him anyway, but he asked me. And, what, and I, I, I trusted him enough and said, I'll, I'll go with you. And the fact that he asked me, to me, that that was a noble act. It's not, doesn't necessarily mean that he would have done what I told him to do, but it was, it was over my wife's bed in the ICU, and, and we were um, in it together. That's, I know, that engagement is, um, I think it's, it's in, in American medicine, it's, oh, I don't know, I actually have fairly experience with other medical systems. But that engagement, because the advantage of American medicine, in my mind, is that it's so well-equipped, and there's so many well-trained people, but the price of it sometimes is that it's a, it's a self-sustaining system, and that you come to it as a patient, as a foreigner, a sort of foreign body, to use a pump. And so doctors treat your broken body, but not your mind. See what I mean? Um, so that engagement, in other words, is not its forte. We know what we're doing. Everything in the system is telling you that we know what you're doing. You cannot begin to understand what we're doing because I'm not an expert in medicine. It's this also related to the fact that American culture or you know, advanced capitalist culture is a, it's a culture of experts. Everyone is an expert at something. And doctors, American neurosurgeons, are the best neurosurgeons in the world, arguably. They're experts at neurosurgery. So who am I to talk to him? 
right? He's, he's possibly one of the best in the country. Why would he ask me? What do I do? But he asked me. Yeah. And at the moment of engagement, turned my wife, now that she wasn't, into a person yeah. rather than a patient with a set of problems that he could fix as an expert. See what I mean? I cannot imagine how that would have diminished his expertise in any way. But that moment of engagement somehow has meant to me quite a bit. And so he decided to operate in the morning, and you know, my wife is all right. Um, so as you know, we, we teach the aquarium to clinicians and students. Um, knowing that, what do you think uh, these clinicians and students can get out of reading this text? Well, I mean, I don't know specifically know, but I would think the engagement. It's, um, I hold no grudge at all. In fact, I'm very grateful to many doctors. And I, had, I hold no grudge not even to, uh, toward the people who were not as generous or engaging as I hoped they would be, because it's a difficult thing to do. And it's, uh, it's very difficult that in such a high-pressure situation, one always makes only the correct course. And I don't mean just you know, medically speaking, but just morally, you know, emotionally. Um, but it, it does, it did surprise me. I had not expected that. And I, I, um, I have not spent a day in the hospital um, for my sake. It's always shown us. I, not for a day. Everything I've ever done was outpatient. So I had, had no experience in the hospital before all this started happening. Isabel and then uh, Esther, a uh, little girl, with uh, Peter Willie, and then my wife. Um, but I, was somewhat surprised by, um, I would have expected more engagement. I'm a kind of a person, I need to ask questions. I want the doctor to tell me, that to, if you wish to construct a kind of a story I can comprehend, there's some sort of a narrative. What are, what are the possibilities? What are the outcomes? I understand that our, and I, I'm glad they didn't, that our uh, oncologists or Isabel's oncologists would not make prognosis. It's not that I wanted them to tell me it's going to be all right because I knew better. But, you know, a part of the story was missing and part of me wanted them to tell me more about it. And in fact, in the end, I realized that I wanted to talk to them. Yeah. I wanted to talk to them so you know what's going on, what are the possibilities so I could um, process it, so we could process it, so we can talk about it later. But the system for, precisely because it's relatively efficient, at least in terms of interventions, does not have time for that. And to this day, I do not understand why, um, why is a chaplain preferred to a trained psychologist? I am not a believer. In fact, the whole notion, um, we were terrified by the possibility that some of people might suggest to us to turn to God in that situation because I would have been furious. It didn't happen, and I walked away. But chaplain and this kind of vague, and please, maybe I'm misunderstanding it. I don't you know disrespected chaplains. I have one of my dearest cousins is a chaplain. But it sort of transfers it to the spiritual realm of cosmic issues. Whereas to me it was fantastically, intensely concrete and precise. To me it was not a, an abstract question. It was what is going to happen tomorrow morning when there's that surgery? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Where are you going to cut? This to me was intensely important and this is what I want to know. And so I understand that I cannot, you know, take the doctor away from the surgery to talk to me for an hour so that I can understand it, obviously, but I would have liked 
a trained psychologist who could not cure me or provide on-site therapy, but rather provide some sort of information so I did not bring the doctor so we could yeah. negotiate the system. And chaplains, with all the respect, did not do that and did not promise that, at least that the, the, the very title chaplain is, you know, I smell incense. That doesn't work for me. Yes. The question was about um, the possible or uh, other aquariums in my work, in my other work, not just the aquarium, um, the piece that I just read. Well, <clears throat> I am not an expert on aquariums or trauma in any way, but I've had some exposure. Um, and I have spent time thinking about it and then, you know, thinking about it in my work and outside of my work. And the mechanism of, of trauma and the way people who are traumatized relate to the world um, are somewhat familiar to me because, not because I'm an expert and I did not read literature, but I, I know a lot of people who were traumatized. This is before um, our medical catastrophes in my family, and this is what war does. Um, and one of the things I've learned um, is that, for one thing, trauma divides the life into the before and the after. There's a rupture, and then um, I suppose one of the things that therapy does or tries to do is to um, restore the continuity. Um, but it's very difficult for some people, and, um, and it does not necessarily depend on the intensity of the trauma. But, um, then um, there's also the sense that only those who are on this side can really understand it, and they can understand it because they've gone through the same experience. But because they've gone through the same experience, um, it's not, there's no reason to talk about it. Yeah. See what I mean? So, or if they talk about it, this is what Bosnians used to do and still sometimes do. It's the same structurally identical stories being passed around. Yeah. Displacement, or um, I did not experience any violence against me or even my family. My family experienced a little violence. But people, and I know them, who experience violence. They go through all these stories, they're sort of lateral storytelling. Someone tells this story, how they're thrown in their house, how they're left into someone else and someone else. Uh, but they think no one outside of this group can really understand it. But no one inside the group really can transfer the experience to the other person because it's the same experience. See what I mean? And in, in which case, storytelling, and this I would think applies to a lot of people who enter med the medical system with, with their traumas. Um, to get out of that group, to cross the line, this is why when Dr. Chandler asked me, what do you think to be this group? to cross that line to the other side. And this cannot be, I mean, you asked about the aquarium. I never feel that I'm out of it, but I can go in and out now, I think. Um, to be able to get out of that, storytelling is one of the ways out. Uh, there was a project at the University of Illinois in Chicago, which uh, was dealing with Bosnian refugees and other refugees, mainly Bosnian refugees. Um, 
uh, in terms of testimony as therapy. Testimony that is people who are traumatized who are subject to war crimes, for instance, if they testify, that means that someone outside of the circle will hear that story. And for them to be able to tell the story, they have to trust the other person. And we have to trust that the other person can understand, can respect, can do something about that. And I don't mean sometimes even legally, but generally. And so the, the, the medium, as it were, was storytelling. And in, in the larger sense, this is also what literature does. It's, it's the, the engagement, the passing stories from one another around the world over generations and thousands of years. It's a, an amazing project of human time, that we can do that. We still do it against all odds, against you know, continuous catastrophe, continuous failures to actually stop the calamities of the world while you're doing so. But imagine what if we didn't do it. I mean, it's hard to imagine what it would be like um, if we didn't have stories to pass to one another around the world. So in that sense, I suppose, there are little aquariums everywhere. My narrative medicine class, uh, we're talking about uh, bearing witness to pain and suffering, and uh, I see that that's a really a uh, big topic in, in your narrative. And uh, I want to ask you, you know, how how do you think you know the people outside the aquarium, as you say, how would you expect them to bear witness to uh, you know your story, like us sitting here and listening to your story? What would you expect? Uh, you know, somebody bearing witness to your pain and like, your experience go through, or also uh, what would you expect a doctor, you know, to do, or even in your case, what were you going through while you were, ex you were experiencing uh, bearing the witness of your child's pain and suffering? Well, bearing witness is, has this, you know, uh, moral or ethical uh, value to that, the very phrase. But I don't know. I think um, when that all that was going on, there's a, there's a specificity of goals in that situation that had nothing to do with bearing witness. Part of my brain, I think it's because this, we, we, that's how we operate as human beings, and, and also part of it because I'm a writer, was recording it all. And the little recorder was constantly going, when I do it in, every given, in any given situation, but not to bear witness in this moral ethical way. It is just what it does, the brain. Um, and I don't know that there's something to be said for bearing witness, but that means also um, the <laughs> bearing witness means different if we're talking about a Holocaust or you know a set of war crimes or someone witnessing injustice. Then it, our uh, common human belief has to be restored, and the, the beginning of that restoration starts with witnesses, someone who bore witness and refuses to lie and cover up what happened. And I think medicine works a little different. It does not help me that anyone, that people might have seen my pain. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure it helps the people who, if they have seen it, what would it do for them? Um, and it's also, um, the phrase implies that it's happening here and there's a witness there. But I, I'm all for engagement, right? So the doctors who were engaging with Isabel, they were not being witness, they were doing it. They were do, doing it, something that I couldn't do, I can't do what they do, what pediatric oncologists do. So they were not bearing witness. So I was bearing witness in the ways to what they were doing, and they had been bearing witness to what I was doing. Well, I doubt it, but there was this group of people who engaged around this, including my little daughter, Ella. And so 
this field of engagement is, is what, what matters. It's always a collective project. Literature is always a collective project. Healthcare is always a collective project. You know, you, to treat illness, you need a doctor and you need a patient. There at least two people. And there's always more. There are always more. So I, I, bearing witness is not entirely applicable to the situation in, in the sense that I understand it. I think, you know, language has many aspects, and um, one of its aspects, perhaps its main aspect, is the daily functionality of communication, and that requires toning down all the noise, as it were. And so, on the one hand, it exposes truths, but on the other hand, it can cocoon us in our own living environments and establish the safety and comfort of, of a society. After the Newport shooting, um, it was, a, it was a festival of horrible cliches. Every time there was a shooting, just, they just pulled them all up. The worst imaginable cliches. And President Obama said, God called them home. And I was, you know, I was banging against the wall. And uh, it made me so fucking furious, I cannot begin to tell you. But he was not saying it to the parents. He was saying it to us. By using a cliche, right? He said, it's tragic, it's terrible, but we are on this side. Right? We'll fix it. So just trust me and trust my presidential instinct to restore uh, order and platitudes and everything will be all right. So anytime there's a, as a public trauma, as it were, collective trauma, societal trauma, the worst cliches come out. They could not possibly apply. If someone told me that Isabel was called home by God, I would have, got, I would have entered a violent fight at that time. But at the same time, there was not, it was not talking to parents. The parents were probably, they were in the aquarium, dazed. Um, he was telling it to us. It'll be okay, don't worry. We're res restoring um, the order as usual. And so in that sense, w the same kind of sensitivity, I think it works for everyone. I'm particularly sensitive to language because I'm a writer, that's what I work in. But the intense sensitivity and, um, and, and lucidity that I had when all that was happening um, with Isabel and then with my other loved ones, applies to language. To me, I see those cliches, they, they, they blaze at me. And other people, and this is not necessarily a judgment of other people, they just see them as these you know, stable things that exist in anger, the anchor bullshit um, that you can always return to and, and to make yourself feel that well, you know, things are going the way they're supposed to, everything's all right. We never have vocabulary for catastrophe. It has to be developed as it's happening. We only have the vocabulary for what we already know for the safe um, options. And so once you start using the safe vocabulary, then we're already on the, on the way to you know, um, restoring order and stability. And Please. that's, Sorry. no, that's it. Please join me in thanking Alexander
a couple of quick announcements. We have uh, Alexander Heyman's books in the back for sale, and also a message from the Narrative Medicine Student Alumni Association screening a film on Wednesday, October 23rd in Knox Hall, room 104 at 6 p.m. Uh, the film is to be uh, decided, and we hope to join you uh, again next month, uh, the first Wednesday of the month. Thank you very much.